Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Well, hello and welcome. Uh, We're going to have a conversation today about a play that many of you think you know. But in fact, if you haven't seen it for a very long time, you you don't know it. You know some shadow of it that lies on your brain. Uh, And the play is Our Town by Thornton Wilder. Um, Howard Sherman, who's been on the show in other capacities before, a theater administrator, writer, uh, and arts advocate. Uh, He is the U.S. columnist for the Stage Newspaper of London and the author of Another Day's Begun. That's why he's here. Another Day's Begun, Thornton Wilder's Our Town in the 21st Century. Yes, uh, Howard has written not only a book about our town, but very specifically uh, a book about our town in, in this young century. So it is everywhere. It permeates all kinds of things. And we're going to begin with the most ridiculous example possible. So this is really true on the final episode of 30 Rock, which is, you know, one of the more anarchically comedic and unapologetically boundary shattering and taste shattering primetime comedy shows ever. Uh, um, They actually invoked our town on the final show. And we thought we would play it also because, you know, Alec Baldwin says he listens to this show. So you never know. He might be listening right now. He might bring back memories. Uh, all right. So uh, here's Liz Lemon and Jack Donahue uh, on that final episode. Does everybody have to be crazy today? Beloved co-workers. Oh, life. It goes by so fast. We barely look at each other. I didn't realize all oh, this was going on. Goodbye. Goodbye, world. Goodbye, long hair guy. Goodbye, Richard Esposito. Go home to your wife and eight beautiful children. You're all so beautiful. All right, so Howard Sherman, we had to get that one out of the way so we could uh, get more deeply into the true sentiments uh, of uh, of our town. But I mean, let's begin with this idea. I'll, actually, I can give you an example. My significant other fell in love with the David Cromer production uh, of Our Town that you chronicle in your book, and she started wanting to take people to it. And everybody she approached, you know, because she wanted to go back again with somebody else. And they would go, Our Town? Why would I go see Our Town? Because th- there is this kind of mental image of what the play is that is very, very different from what the play is. Maybe you can give us uh, your sense of that. Sure. I think people remember pieces of Our Town, but they don't remember the whole. They remember the scenes in Grover's Corners. They remember people preparing beans to be canned for the winter, and they remember the soda shop scene between George and Emily. But what they're, what they don't tend to remember, first of all, are these long narrated pieces by this character who is listed in the cast as the stage manager, but is actually never spoken of by name in the play. And they pretty much get the entire third act, which is really where the core of the play is. So it's it's so frequently misremembered as being this little picture, postcard, perfect, cute play, which of course is never cool to most people. And the fact is, it's this really deep consideration of mortality and our place in the universe. Yeah, I think one of the reasons that they um, th- that they have that idea that I think they sort of because 
It's a difficult play to describe. In fact, when you start to say, well, no, it's not that. It's this other thing. To lay out what the play is is very difficult. And as you point out in the book, there's, there isn't the obvious source of conflict. I mean, Grover's Corner is sort of Bedford Falls with no Mr. Potter. You know, th- there's a way in which what happens in the play comes from a different source, I think, than typical dramatic structure uh, promises or, or entails. Um, in fact, uh, maybe I'm sure you've found a way to do this, but to somebody who's never seen the play, read the play, um, what would you tell them if you were going to describe the play? I wimped out in the book because what I did was use very bad descriptions of it and then hoped people knew the play. But I think what the play is, is it uses a series of scenes of small town life to contemplate what we should take from our lives and realize what the stressors of our life are in the grand scheme of the country, the world, the universe, and so on. But it has no, you can say, sure, it's about a boy and girl who live next door to each other and fall in love and get married. And then things hit a very, very difficult and painful snag. But um, wearing the marketing hat that people from Hartford may remember me for, you know, it's not easy to explain why the play has lived so vividly for 83 years, you just have to figure out how to get them in there and be willing to take what is really a bit of a ride and an unexpected ride if you've never seen it before or forgotten it. Right. And and I also think, so I mean, you have to sort of attach to this. Um, yeah, it has this reputation, this kind of latent reputation of kind of uh, you know, a, a, a Norman Rockwell painting brought to life. Although, in fact, I don't know, we did a whole show about Norman Rockwell. It turns out he's darker and more complicated than I had realized, too. And and, and I think there is this sort of that idea that it's this sentimentalized, uh, fr- frozen in amber uh, vision uh, of America at a specific pre-World War One moment without much relationship to the present. And there's, sort of, there's sort of that idea. And then, you know, if if you've gone a little bit further, you can seem like kind of more like Cracker Cracker Barrel Beckett or Cracker Barrel Avant-Garde or Potbellied Stove Avant-Garde, right? There's a way in which this play at its time and, and 80-something years later is really kind of revolutionary. Well, David Cromer made a great point that when our town was new and you were looking back from 1938 on 1905 or so, you weren't going that far back in time. Yes, you'd, you'd had a generation pass, but it wasn't really antiquity. The problem is, is the play has gotten older. Those scenes set in the past have, in many productions, remained in the past. And so it's an excuse to put on old-timey costumes and the Pepperidge Farm accent of New Hampshire and, and it seems very cute, and it seems very uh, old-fashioned. And what part of the reason I wanted to focus on the 21st century is, so how do you do that play? Why would you do that play if it was nothing but a love letter to the past? And 
many of the directors who've done it in recent years have had to figure out equivalents or ways in in keeping the text the same, but finding ways to stage it that would make it more relatable. In the case of Cromer's production, everybody looked like they were just in rehearsal clothes. And and it was really, really pared back. It would have made the original production almost look opulent. And the original production was famous for being very spare. But then when I see productions with a black stage manager, a female stage manager, with a multiracial cast, a trilingual production done in English, Spanish, and Creole, uh, a production done simultaneously in American Sign Language and in English, see it done in England, you start to realize that if this was nothing but a love letter to the turn of the 20th century, these people wouldn't want to do this play, and, and they wouldn't find meaning in it. And, and what I discovered in doing the book is that more so than most plays that people are in, the actors come away from this play with a message. It's not just the audience. The actors actually feel changed by it. One of the actors uh, in David Cromer's production, the actor who played Emily for the longest run in there, actually had a couple of lines from the play tattooed onto her. It meant so much to her. So there's there's something there above and beyond exactly what you're looking on at on stage. It's worth noting, although your book focuses on the 21st century, but it's worth noting that when this play premiered, when it was first seen in 1938, and Cromer makes this point in your book, a lot of this stuff really would have seemed pretty avant-garde, this kind of stripped-down staging, you know, with with no sets, This uh, these flashbacks. The, the, the third act is kind of weird, maybe, uh, in a way that we, we haven't seen before or hadn't seen before in 38, uh, and, and the sort of so-called breaking of the uh, fourth wall. There's a way in which the, the stage manager becomes this kind of bridge between uh, a cast and an audience. I, I would assume, well, you, you write a lot about how it was reacted to as it made its way towards New York. But I mean, this in its weird, it, it, on the one hand, you know, it's, it's, it is this kind of cracker barrel thing. On the other hand, this would have been at the time, I would imagine, kind of a stretch in terms of form and presentation. I can say yes and no. For Broadway in that era, perhaps, although as I note in the book, there was another play dealing with mortality and the meaning of life and what death makes us reflect on, which opened the night before our town, a play called On Borrowed Time, which we don't hear as much about anymore, although Hartford Stage did it in the early 80s. And, and in some ways it had the same themes. The other thing is that Wilder freely acknowledged that he was very influenced by classics, not only classic, the Greek classics, but by Asian classics. And there was not lots of scenery there. You Mm -hmm. simply were told where you were and you accepted where you were. So in a way, in world theater, our town existed within a continuum. But yes, the average new play on Broadway in that era probably was more literal and straightforward. And and I think what David said is true in the same way that we watch Citizen Kane now, 
And if you've never seen it before, you might not realize that so many of the things that Orson Welles did in Citizen Kane had never been done in movies before. They're now part of the, the language of film. And I think that's why there are so many other works of art, theater, movies, plays, which which reference our town in some way or another, because it is this, this central expression of people's common experience. So I, I want to play a clip from uh, a 2003 uh, production. Uh, this is from the Westport County Playhouse production. I, I guess it's, this is the um, showtime for PBS 2003. That, that's what I mean by that. Uh, Westport County Playhouse production uh, and uh, as also performed at the Booth Theater. Uh, this is all by way of setting up Paul Newman as stage manager. So let's hear that. You know, Babylon had two million people in it. And all we know about them is names of some kings, wheat contracts, sailor slaves, and yet every night, family had sat down to supper, our father had come home from work, smoke would go up the chimney, same as here. And even in Rome and Greece, all we know about the real life of those people is what we've been able to piece together from some of the hokey poems and the comedies that they wrote for the theater back then. So I'm going to have a copy of this play put in that cornerstone so that people a thousand years from now will know a few simple facts about us more than the Treaty of Versailles, Lindbergh's flight, so that people a thousand years from now will say this, this is the way we were. In the provinces north of New York at the beginning of the 20th century, this is the way we were in our growing up, in our marrying, in our living, and in our dying. All right. Um, I think Howard and I would both like to observe that there are a couple of <laughs> liberties taken by Newman with the actual Wilder text there. Uh, but that's not what we want to talk about. I think we need to talk about several things here all at once. One of them is, so Westport wound up doing this partly in reaction to 9-11. And that almost seems to be kind of a pattern. Uh, you write about a London performance that was uh, done, a production that was done four months after the uh, Ariana Grande concert uh, bombing. Uh, and you also have written about about sort of doing this show uh, at uh, in, in a time of pandemic. So um, what's going on here? Why this play? Why do we gravitate towards the play at a time like that? I think because the play requires us, if we're engaged with it, to think about where we are in our life and where the world around us is and where we fit into that. So when there is something tragic, how do we lift ourselves up from that? What can we take from that? We can take the sadness, but we can also take the reminder that we have to find the beauty in life every day, even in the small things, because we never know when it's going to be taken from and when we won't be able to experience that anymore. So interestingly, there's a production that just closed in Australia, and it was the Queensland Theatre's first production with a full audience since the pandemic. They're farther ahead down there in terms of, of quashing COVID, 
And in Australia, they decided what was the play. It's our town. And it's not because they wanted to remind people of what life was like in America. It was because of these, these bigger issues, these bigger ideas. And I'm of the belief, not that I do a lot of analysis of the play myself, I leave that to others, but I'm of the belief that that our town is not a play in which things happen to others and you respond to it with empathy. I think our town is a play that happens to you as a member of the audience. That's why the stage manager is constantly talking to you in the audience, not as much to the people on stage, because ultimately, I think if you are affected by it, you are affected largely by the way that you project onto this very spare template, your own life. And it can really grab you. I mean, I, I've admitted freely to being just reduced to an absolute puddle twice watching our town. And, and that doesn't happen to me very much at the theater. And I certainly test that in a normal year pretty regularly because I see 100 to 150 shows a year. Yeah, I, one of those times that you were reduced to tears was in the Cromer production, and there's a great uh, anecdote uh, in your book. Your book, we should say, is kind of a series of oral histories of these uh, very different kinds of productions. And in the Cromer one, uh, Cromer's talking about, I think, kind of uh, one of the kind of trial runs of it. And they, you know, they only had like 20 people out in the audience. And they somehow or other got the idea that people were laughing in a way that they didn't want people to be laughing that didn't seem appropriate. But then when the lights went up or the curtain, it wouldn't have been a curtain, I guess. Uh, they suddenly realized people were, I think, projectile bawling was the term yep. that he used, you know, that that people were sobbing in such an incredibly explosive way that it sounded like laughter. Yep. Well, probably because most people want to hold that in. It's probably, it is probably the same thing as it's laughing at church, but it's not easy to just let yourself go emotionally while you're watching a play. You think you're going to disturb the people around you. You, you think it's unseemly. And ultimately, if the play overwhelms you, you eventually have to let it go. And what that noise is can be misinterpreted, especially when it was the first performance. I mean, David talked about being angry because people have to understand in David's production, David was not only the director, but David played the stage manager. So he was on stage experiencing it, not just as the director, but also as as the actor. So the other thing we have to talk about, and you've set us up perfectly to do that, is this guy, the stage manager, or this person, we should say, because people like Helen Hunt uh, have now done it, and you talk about gender-fluid productions, and I mean, all kinds of people have been the stage manager. But, you know, once again, Cromer asks a good question when he when he's going to do it, which is sort of why is there this person? <laughs> why am I going to be this person? Who is this person? I mean, there it's hard to think of another um, another example of that, another kind of character. I, I guess what? Yeah, you could go back to Greek choruses and Shakespearean choruses and stuff like that. But they're not like that either. Talk about the stage manager. And I mean, I would assume there isn't common agreement about who that person is? I don't think there's common agreement, but I think the stage manager is every person or can be every person. The stage manager has no story arc, has no personal details about their background or who they are. 
there's and and there's no real characteristics. That's why anyone can play the stage manager because they are your guide through the the experience of our town, not just to tell you where buildings are located, but actually to point out facts, to point out feelings. It's the stage manager who almost immediately starts talking about people in the town who've died. Uh, it it so so that character guides you as a result who embodies that character can so influence how you perceive the play and indeed the act some of the actors that i talked to especially women who were in the play when there was a female stage manager talked about what a radically different experience it was to have those lines coming from a woman instead of a man and then when you add in artists of color, different ages, whatever you choose, that that influences you. But it does in no way is ever untrue to the stage manager because the stage manager doesn't quite exist. And we don't know who the stage manager is. And the other question, which we don't know exactly when the stage manager is. Is the stage manager in Grover's Corners? Is the stage manager in New York in 1938? Is the stage manager wherever you're seeing it? We don't know. Is the stage manager God? Is the stage manager an angel? Is the stage manager what? And so, and it's the largest role in the play. So it's it's highly unusual, but it's great in the sense that you can constantly reinvent the show simply with that single casting choice in right. terms of what audiences will perceive. You spoke about the production that was done after the concert bombing in Manchester in 2017, and that was a terrorist bombing. And Sarah Francom, the artistic director of uh, the Royal Exchange Theater, intentionally cast a man of Middle Eastern heritage, and not simply a man of Middle Eastern heritage, but a very large man of Middle Eastern heritage who told me he makes most of his money playing terrorists. What is it to have someone with that physicality tell you this story in a city that was so damaged by terrorism? So, and yeah, it's 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 just an extraordinary way of saying it's not that people of the Middle East are all people to be afraid of. That was one person. Here's another. So um, you've uh, done the stage manager, stage manager at a reading. I've played the stage manager too. Tell me what, what it was like for you. So, so invested in this material to, uh, to, to do the role. Maybe you should explain where and when you did that. Well, I read the stage manager to a very, very small audience, and, and even they were indulgent of me since I'm no actor, but I read it at uh, the eighth meeting of the Church of Grover's Corners in Louisville, Kentucky, a group of people in the arts community who decided that there is indeed something healing and reassuring about our town, and they get together basically every six to eight weeks, and they just sit in somebody's living room and read the play aloud and they've been doing it now since 2018. 
and anybody can read any part and it constantly rotates and who shows up varies from from meeting to meeting but it's quite it's quite an interesting experience and yes i read the stage manager there i did it very early in the process of working on the book it was one of the very first sort of research bits that i did and so i've probably already told you most of what i discovered about the stage manager but it it's one thing to watch it from the outside and in the totality of the play. But when your job is to focus on one character, that's when I realized he has reams of dialogue at a time. And then he doesn't talk for six, eight pages. And that he never really speaks to anyone as, as him or herself until act three. Yeah. While while the character steps into being the minister, steps into being Mr. Morgan at the drugstore, the only time the stage manager is simply the stage manager is with Emily in Act Three. And and how unusual to have someone who sits that far outside of the play, the action of the play, such as it is, but isn't really part of that story. So uh, the one thing that I would say about this, I did this at the Little Theater of Manchester, uh, and it was kind of for a benefit, a kind of a fundraiser for them. But it was in 2009. I was kind of between radio shows. And so I, I had time to get off book. Um, and, and I thought it would be I didn't need to. I think it was a staged reading. Uh, but I, I thought it would be fun to do and, and interesting to try. And the one thing that I really noticed from that, I mean, I don't, I don't think that I thought about it very <laughs> <laughs> intelligently. <laughs> I don't think I had a big David Cromer conversation with myself about it. I was just imprisoned almost by the language. The language is so amazing. I mean, you sort of think that it's all this stuff where you drop the G at the uh, end of an ING word, and it's all this kind of Garrison Keillor. By the way, Garrison Keillor, I think for all of those decades at Prairie Home Companion, was basically channeling, consciously or otherwise, the stage manager. But I mean, really, the language, Howard, is just it just blows your mind how the the language you know some of that third act the language is so amazing uh you forget what a gorgeous writer wilder was using simple words nothing fancy there's poetry but it's the poetry of everyday language and and then the theme is when you start reading it aloud you you find the things like the constant repetition of numbers this is a play that talks about thousands and millions of of years and of items and you talk about the stars and you talk about you know you mentioned world that this was before world war one the grover's corner scenes this is a play where the civil war is invoked frequently world war one is mentioned by the stage manager telling us about characters we meet who are going to die in world war one and it's a play that was written, Wilder was mostly writing it in Europe, while the Nazi rise to power was, was happening. And yet, again, the classic images of this very simple, uh, twee little play. So, so why this story with, with wars shot through it? Why do we keep hearing about wars? Why was it written as we were on our way to war? It's, it's it's philosophy. It's a whole philosophy of life, or or as I refer to it, it's it's a secular theology. 
because it acknowledges some greater power, but never says exactly what that greater power is. Right. You know, Howard, I'm going to pause you there because I think we need to t- tackle that at the top of the next segment. Uh, right. So why don't we uh, take a quick break? We're talking to Howard Sherman, uh, his new book, which I am now holding in my hand. Another day, I hold it up to the microphone so you can see it at home. Another Day's Begun, Thornton Wilder's Our Town in the 21st Century. Let's take a break. Oh, this is the music of Aaron Copeland written for the 1940 uh, motion picture. Uh, this music got me in a tremendous amount of trouble with Tappan Wilder, but maybe that's a story we will or won't tell. have it. Breakfast is as good as any other meal, and I won't have you gobbling it down like wolves. It'll stunt your growth. That's a fact. Wally, put away that book. Oh, Ma, by 10 o'clock, I gotta know all about Canada. You know the rules well as I do. No reading at the table. It's for me. I'd rather have my children healthy than bright. I'm both, Mama. You know I am. I'm the brightest girl in school for my age. I have a wonderful memory. Eat your breakfast. All right. That also was from that uh, Westport uh, County Playhouse, Country Playhouse production. Uh, and that was Jane Curtin as Mrs. Webb. You probably recognize some of you would have recognized that voice. Uh, with us is Howard Sherman, uh, the author of Another Day's Begun, Thornton Wilder's Our Town in the 21st Century. I think I will just quickly tell this story about the Copeland music because I, I think it might lead to something for you, Howard. Uh, and that is I was working also, I think, in 2009 with the Hartford State, with the Hartford Symphony Orchestra. And they were conducted at the time by Edward Cumming. He wanted to do an evening of Copeland. Uh, and one of the things we were we're going to do is take that music from uh, from the Our Town movie and, and have that be one of the pieces the orchestra played. But he wanted some pieces of Our Town uh, interspersed uh, among the music. And so I believe I actually recruited Janet Peckinpah as an actress. Uh, but anyway, the whole idea was that I, I was going to sort of work this thing up and I would do some of the uh, performing of it too. And, and I bet you, Howard, you know what comes next, which is that, but it was like with less than 24 hours before Curtain, uh, we found out that the Wilder estate or whoever it is that controls this play had found out about this thing. And they don't like that kind of thing, right? They don't let you like chop the thing up and you put it in. And we were told under in no uncertain terms um, not to do this. But what made it interesting was my sense was it was the Wilder family talking to us, not like Samuel French or, or somebody like that. There's a way in which this play has kind of stayed with the family. It absolutely has stayed with the family. Uh, Wilder, and we should note Wilder, who lived for 50 years in Hamden, Connecticut. Uh, Wilder, when he passed away in 75, the, the control of his work went to his sister Isabel, who lived in Hamden until 95 when she passed away. And at that point, on behalf of the family, it passed to Wilder's nephew, Tappan, uh, who's a scholar and a historian. And he has administered the estate now for for 25 plus years, because I think he may have even been involved before his aunt passed away. 
And so, yeah, you're absolutely talking to the family and you're talking to someone who who knew his uncle and and knew, you know, had conversations with his uncle about his uncle's work. And he is unquestionably the the foremost expert in in our town and and Wilder's work, we should say, you know, Wilder only wrote three full length plays. He wrote a bunch of one acts, but he was equally well known as a novelist. And he had two Pulitzer Prizes as a playwright, and he had one as a novelist, which is a pretty fantastic record for anybody. But yeah, you're talking to the family. And and the story on the great part of the story on the Copeland is while the music can be done as a symphonic suite, separate and distinct from the film, and and it evokes our town, Wilder himself, uh declined to give Copeland permission to turn our town into an opera. Mm. And in terms of the text, no, if you want to do our town, you do our town and you do our town as Thornton wrote it. But as I said, you can do this play and stay absolutely true to the spirit of the play. And, and yet it can be adapted. And where Tappan has been fantastic is that he is open to all of these different ways of presenting our town even authorizing you can now get that trilingual production you can get that get the script of that and that can be done elsewhere it wasn't a one-time thing that happened at miami new drama he he has allowed the play to live and breathe and grow in a way that those of us who are used to dealing with theatrical rights, especially for authors that have passed away, um, know that some estates really aren't that flexible and they want the work to be done exactly as it was or exactly as their ancestor thought it should be done. I think so, part of the reason our town lives is because of Tappan's flexibility. So, you know, as we were getting to the end of the previous segment, you said something about secular theology. I think we need to sort of pause there, too, because it's, this seems to be one of the ways in which this play is kind of open to multiple interpretations. Uh, I think, as you say, uh, it's a play that affects the audience, uh, that um, whatever you bring in there with you, you bring to your understanding of the play, but the play also brings some stuff to you as an audience member. But, you know, there is that speech that the stage manager does where he says, you know, we all know that something is eternal. It ain't houses. It ain't names. It ain't earth. It ain't even the stars. Everybody knows in their bones that something is eternal and something that and that something has to do with human beings. It goes on from there. But um, I think it is possible to impose a purely, you know, deistic and theological, non-secular theological interpretation to that. Why do you say secular the theology? I guess that's what I'm asking you. I say secular because it's all non-specific. It's not, it doesn't impose on you a theological construct. It nods to Protestantism because we know that the town was largely Protestant and we do hear a couple of hymns that are dictated in the script. But overall, it's about ideas. I think what it does in the same way that it boiled down and boiled together a number of theatrical influences, I think it boils down both uh, religious influences and straightforward philosophical influences. 
it it suggests there is something greater but is it a who is it a what we're not really sure and that's where the conversation about you know some people wanting to say that the stage manager is god but it, i i know a line in the play where i say no he makes pretty clear the stage manager is not god one of the actors in the book says i decided he was an angel well you can decide that for yourself but there's no point in the play at which you really play at being an angel so i think you absolutely can look at the humanism and the the deep thought about what the meaning of our life is and what we can do with the time that we're given that will align with i think you know i don't know every religion in depth to be to be sure but i think it's it can be accepted in almost every one and if you choose not to see religion in it if you are an agnostic or an atheist you can still get the message of this play and not be worried about it imposing a particular idea of particular deity upon you so uh i know actually i think we need to wrap this up because uh, i want to give you and kate powers uh, some room to breathe here in the final segment where where there are so many other things to, to talk about here uh but maybe you'll just have to get the book and then have conversations with the people in your life uh we're going to go out to this break with frank sinatra's love and marriage which a lot of people don't know this originally comes from the first musical version of our town in 1955 tv production aired on producers showcase with sinatra as stage manager paul Newman at age 30 was George, I believe Eva Marie Saint was uh, Emily. Uh, anyway, here, here we go, uh, and we'll be back after this. Love and marriage, love and marriage, they go together like a horse and carriage. This I'll tell you, brother You can't have one without the other Love and marriage, love and marriage It's an institute you can't disparage All right, uh, we are back. Uh, before we uh, go to the final segment here, I have some uh, thank yous to say, starting with Kat Pastor. She's the technical producer. She's in the studio making it all come together via Zoom and uh, other devices uh, so we can work remotely and have guests on from wherever. The episode episode itself was produced by Jonathan McNichol. Jonathan McPants uh, is his actual nom de guerre. Uh, and uh, so thanks very much to, to both of them. So yeah, we're talking about our town right now with Howard Sherman, uh, his new book is Another Day's Begun, Thornton Wilder's Our Town in the 21st Century. Before we get back to him and to our other guests, I just want to read this one tweet because it's so terrific. Uh, the writer Justin Sharon has tweeted, if your intent is to look at death and not blink, you don't do it all at once. You get closer and closer and adjust to the darkness and closer and swallow hard and wipe the sweat. Finally, if you're brave enough, you can manage it. 
That's what the play does. Well, that is a very interesting and very beautifully expressed uh, interpretation of one of the things that I think the play does do. So we're going to talk now uh, about one of the productions that Howard writes about uh, in his book and chronicles as kind of an oral history. And we're going to have that conversation with Kate Powers, a stage director and founder of the Redeeming Time Project. Uh, in 2013, she did direct a production of Our Town at Sing Sing Correctional Facility. Kate Powers, welcome to our conversation. Thanks so much. So from Howard's book and from what you've written, I mean, we should probably get, begin with the fact that when you first presented this idea to the potential cast uh, and inmate population, uh, there wasn't necessarily a whole lot of cheering and excitement about this, right? There was like this kind of, we don't want to do this. And, and it's very specifically this idea that it was a white play and, and most of these people were uh, men of color. Correct. I, I want to also clarify that uh, I didn't propose the play. Uh, the men always pick the plays. They have a steering committee uh, at Rehabilitation Through the Arts, and the men select the plays. So the steering committee selected this play. I had suggested it as one among many for them to consider that year. So, um, yeah, talk a little bit more about how they reacted to that, though. I mean, the stuff yeah. that Howard has collected is very powerful in terms of what their initial reaction was and what that changed into. Yeah, I would say there was a there was a vocal minority in the room who were incandescent with anger, who said, why are we doing this white play? This play has nothing to do with us. Um, I, I ain't feeling it was something I heard over and over again um, that they they just you know, and, and uh, one of the men that uh, Howard spoke to for the book, uh, Kenyatta Hughes, who was on the steering committee, the first time he read it, he said, this play is about nothing. Nothing happens in this play. Um, which uh, was something that he had occasion to revise or elaborate on as we went along. So how did you break through that? I mean, I know from reading a little bit of how, how you broke through that resistance, but but tell our audience. Sure. Well, one of the things I said to Kenyatta when he said nothing happens in this play, I said, listen, I said, read it one more time. And I said, just think about the life of the individual and the life of a star. And I said, if you still think it's not about anything, I won't bring it up again. And the next time I was in the facility, he said, we're doing that play. <laughs> well, the another thing that you said to one of the objectors, I think, was, why don't we see if we can make it our town? Yeah. Um, say a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, I think that, um, you know, Howard's been talking about this with you across the hour, right, about the ways in which this play resonates, not just for each audience, but for each acting company that works on it. And I really thought there was an opportunity for us to explore the very specific and peculiar town that is Sing Sing, a men's maximum security facility. Um, you know, we have a schoolhouse, we have a church, we have a mosque, uh, we have uh, a version of Mr. Morgan's general store in the commissary, right? So there's components of life on the outside, uh, writ carceral in there. And um, so I, I thought there was an opportunity for us to explore what that was. And also, you know, the core question of the play, right? How do you live your life every, every minute when what you want is for 25 years to fly by like that? Right. In fact, um, let's just play a little clip. We don't have a clip from the Sing Sing production. Once again, we're uh, back at Westport Country Playhouse. But uh, yeah, Kat, let's play C1. Were you happy? No, I should have listened to you. That's all human beings are. Just blind people. Oh, look, 
It's clearing up. The stars are coming out. Oh, Mr. Stimson, I should have listened to them. Yes. Now you know. Now you know. That's what it was to be alive. To move about in a cloud of ignorance. To go up and down, trampling on the feelings of those. Of those about you. To spend and waste time as though you had a million years. To be always at the mercy of one self-centered passion or another. Now you know. That was the happy existence you wanted to go back to. Ignorance and blindness. Well, that's not the whole truth. And you know it, Simon Stimson. So, uh, fast forward to the actual production. Uh, I think there's two performances for the inmate population uh, and then one for selected outsiders, which I believe included Howard, and we'll get back to Howard in just a second here. But I, I thought one of the fascinating reactions that some of the cast members said about uh, their fellow incarcerated uh, men in the audience is that they came up afterwards and said, you finally did a show that's about us. You finally did a show that's really for us, uh, which would have been kind of the opposite of where things seem to be headed uh, at the beginning. But I think a lot of it does have to do with that idea of time, right? A lot of these people are doing 22 to life or they've got a 130 year sentence, so they're never getting out. So time and how to spend time is thought about maybe very differently, but no less urgently. Right. And, you know, men die every day in maximum security, right? And we, we certainly are seeing that now during the pandemic. Um, but but it was true before. Men die every day and nothing is promised in there, right? So you may uh, have a sentence of, you know, 25 to life and maybe, you know, you get to take your first trip to the parole board at a certain point, but you also... Who knows if you're going to make it to that time, right? Not to be so dark and fatalistic, but how do you manage to savor the little moments, as, you know, as one of the men uh, said, inside this cesspool of unrelenting horror, how do you manage to find the moments of beauty and connection to other human beings? So, Howard, uh, I think you said you cried twice as you saw all these pro productions. One of them was the Cromer production. I believe this was the other one, right? Yeah, it was. And and Kate will remember that, I mean, I started crying. I started crying in Act Two, not because of what was happening in Act Two. But as soon as the wedding began, I was crying because I knew what happened in Act Three. And it just kept going. And Kate, had to, Kate brought me Kleenex in my seat, um, <laughs> which is not, you know, the usual service one gets from a, a director. But yeah, I mean, I think it was a combination of things. I think I was very anxious about being in a maximum security facility I'd never been before. So so that was sort of pent up. And once I got over that and just let myself go into the play, it it just completely grabbed me. How can you hear a line when you're seeing a play performed by men who are serving 20, 30 or more years in maximum security and suddenly you hear the line people are all just shut up in little boxes, aren't they? I'm paraphrasing. But little boxes, this is a cast that has to get done with the play in time to go back to their cells. People are all just shut up in little boxes. Their experience of this play is profound in terms of what we've been talking about, time, their understanding of time and how they choose to use time and what they will do with their time 
if they are able to leave these circumstances, which in the play, Emily does not have the ability to do. It's, it's really quite extraordinary. And these men have, have a deep, deep understanding of this play and can articulate their, their understanding of this play at length and do in the book. I mean, sitting with, with these guys, um, both some still who are incarcerated, some who have been paroled was, was eye opening to me. Um, on on not simply a theatrical level, but on a on a human level, we're going to have to stop there. Uh, I, I wish we had more time because, as Howard said earlier uh, in this conversation, a lot of the actors who do this show find that it has changed them, maybe changed them more than other gigs that they have had. And it's uh, I, I wish we had some time to elaborate on on how that happened here. But if you read the book, it is definitely the case that uh, a lot of these performers walked away from this play in a very different frame of mind, or at least having absorbed, uh, I, I think, you know, some some interesting new ways of, of looking at things and, and being changed by them. So uh, I want to thank everybody who listened today. And I want to thank everybody who helped out with this show. And especially want to thank our guest, Howard Sherman, his new book, Another Day's Begun, Thornton Wilder's Our Town in the 21st Century, Kate Powers, stage director, founder of the Redeeming Time Project. In 2013, she directed a production of Our Town at Sing Sing Correctional Facility. That's it for today. We have to go. We will be back tomorrow. Thank you.